folks, this campaign for president thing is going gangbusters. I'm really excited. But I am new to a few aspects of it. First off, I'm a little new to the building a podcasting community bit. I asked you all to like my podcast. But in podcasting, apparently what you do is follow or subscribe. So please, do those things. Also, stats are sometimes a little hard to come by with podcasting, amazing as it may seem in this day and age. Nonetheless, I know we made our goals from the last episode, so keep it up. Follow this podcast on Stitcher, CastBox, Spotify, or, when they get around to carrying it, iTunes. And tell your friends, your enemies, your friends' enemies, and your enemies' friends about it, and we'll be golden in no time. Just think about it. If each of you signs up just 30 more people, and those 30 people sign up 30 more people, and those 30 people sign up 30 people, then we'll have 24 million listeners. Easy, right? Okay. In a bit of recent news, the former mayor of Baltimore was convicted of corruption. Shocking. I know. She apparently sold 100,000 of her self-published children's books to the University of Maryland Medical System for $500,000 while she was on the board of that medical system. I want you all to know that the idea of taking advantage of my political profile to sell books has never occurred to me. But if it has occurred to you, just visit CandidateEveryone.com for a link to my Amazon Authors page. Oh, and if you know anybody on the board of the University of Maryland Medical System, be sure to have them give me a call. I'm sure we can find a way to some sort of mutually beneficial arrangement. I received some feedback from the last podcast. One helpful listener, Josh, said my voice put him to sleep. He suggested I take up a career as a DJ on a smooth jazz station or try out leading guided meditation sessions online. He was being serious, and it gave me an idea. Instead of winning voters over, I could just hypnotize them. All I need is my 24 million subscribers to find another 30 listeners each, and I'll be well on my way to world conquest. Or I could just try to make my voice a little more interesting. Another listener, David, said I needed to work on enunciation. So I started doing voice exercises. Manala thavaza monolo thovozo. You get the idea. He also said I needed to talk more about policy. So this episode will involve a story about actual policy. We'll get to that soon. The key takeaway is if you've got suggestions that can help me become the most powerful person on earth, I'm ready to listen. After all, it takes a village to become president, although I've heard that sometimes even that doesn't work. I am aware I'm not the only candidate out there. Just this week, Mayor Bloomberg launched his candidacy. I'm going to avoid the cheap and obvious jokes. It is just too easy to thank Trump for opening the door for white, late, middle-aged, male, billionaire New York businessmen who waffle between parties and seem to have few convictions. Anyway, Bloomberg spent $34 million in the first day. In case you didn't know, I'm on a somewhat tighter budget. As I mentioned previously, I have to stay below the $5,000 Federal Election Commission threshold. So far, we've spent $14 in the first week. I thought it was $9, but it turns out I bought the monthly podcasting package rather than the annual one. That just shows the faith I have in my candidacy. Anyway, at $9 a week... Oops, sorry. At $14 a week, I can campaign for almost seven years. That, folks, is efficiency. 
But Bloomberg, for whatever reason, has chosen another path. It might be because he has a net worth estimated at $58 billion. That is like Donald Trump times 30. It can't help but guarantee presidential success, right? When my seven-year campaign is up, assuming I'm not president by then, I plan on following in the good mayor's footsteps. Like the most successful Jewish businessman in history, Bloomberg realized the real money wasn't selling basic things to the speculators of his age. Just like Levi's sold jeans to gold prospectors, Bloomberg sold news to financial folk. These business people made a pretty penny enabling risky speculators to risk everything in the hopes of a big strike. So I need to do what they did, and I have the perfect idea. I think I'll be the Jewish new man who rents short-term office space to entrepreneurs. It couldn't possibly go wrong, could it? There is other news outside the news of campaigning and politics. Just give me a moment, I'll try to remember what it is. Oh, oh, yes, yes. The end of the world is coming. I'm talking about climate change, but not the part of climate change you're thinking of. You see, some enterprising scientists developed a world-changing technology. They created a bacteria that eats CO2. I mean, wow, this should scare the fecal matter out of all of us. I'm no scientist, but as a general rule, things that stay in one place consume CO2, use solar energy, and emit oxygen. And things that move around consume oxygen, eat things that don't move, and emit CO2. It's a nice balance, a plant versus animal yin-yang kind of thing. These bacteria violate that balance. They consume CO2, which is plant food, and they move. As any viewer of Jurassic Park could tell you, nothing could possibly go wrong here. We couldn't possibly release bacteria into the wild that would spread everywhere, depriving plants of their vital fuel and thus plant eaters of their daily bread. Couldn't happen. These scientists have it all under control. Now, these particular bacteria aren't solar-powered like plants. They require something called formate to survive. I checked at my local grocery store, and I couldn't find any formate, so there might be a built-in failsafe that limits these things from getting out of control. On the other hand, they might evolve and find a substitute for formate, like cellulose. All I'm saying is that until somebody comes up with a good recipe for fried bacteria in a bacteria sauce with a side of bacteria and a bacteria garnish, I'm going to remain concerned that maybe we're taking the CO2 thing a little too far. Last episode, I promised I'd talk about civil unrest in Latin America, and now I will. For those not following it, there have been widespread protests and riots in Chile. Meanwhile, the socialist drug-dealing president of Bolivia has been booted out, and Colombia is seeing widespread protests. These are three different countries with different issues, but they are all connected to Latin America's continual and very healthy jumps between oligarchy and socialism, with a few populist strongmen thrown in for good measure. We aren't going to fix that cycle today. Really, in most cases, I think it speaks to cultural challenges in the region. But we will talk about Chile. Because Chile has really been a South American success story. They seem to have moved past many of the problems facing their neighbors. The economy has boomed, there's a real middle class, decent economic mobility, and a pretty straightforward government, certainly for South America. But there's also an incredible economic squeeze for the middle and lower classes. Real estate, in particular, costs an extraordinary amount, and the median Chilean has a very hard time making ends meet. And, according to my math, half of the people are below the median. 
The cost of real estate not only squeezes the poor, it forces their money to be spent on basics rather than on investing in bettering their lot in life. All of this has led to massive social unrest. Why should this matter to Americans? Because the issues facing Chile are echoed in the U.S. as well. Income inequality, per se, isn't the issue. The issue is that the poor and middle class are being squeezed. Our main recipe for dealing with this is wealth transfer. A recent Wall Street Journal article pointed out that the bottom quintile, the bottom fifth of Americans in the U.S., earn $4,908 a year, but they receive $45,389 in government transfers. The problem is, handouts can be a curse as well as a blessing. They can actually shackle those receiving them. It is far healthier for society to enable economic mobility by freeing up the resources of those who are not rich. However, subsidies and price-fixing methods of freeing up those resources can both backfire tremendously. Subsidies tend to drive up prices, while price-fixing tends to limit supply. But there are other tools that can free up cash flow for the poor and middle class while preserving the core incentives and reward of economic productivity. Josh, I have to ask you, did that sentence put you to sleep? It almost put me to sleep. So rather than drone on about abstract and meaningless concepts, I've actually written a series of stories about how this might be done. I think it's time for the first of them. This one is called The Minneapolis Lakes Savings and Trust. There are no walls in my new offices. Instead, each of my team's desks is shaped like a donut with a seat in the middle. They make me think of the battle stations on some sci-fi star cruiser. Everybody's tools are close at hand and there are no impediments to communication. All it takes to talk, actually talk, to anybody else in the room is the twist of a chair. The idea extends to the walls of the office itself. Instead of being located in some office park somewhere, the office takes up the entire 41st floor of a round building in downtown Minneapolis. With a glance around the room, my team members can connect with one another, and with a glance outside of the expansive windows, they can connect with the city they are serving. Right now, the team is small. We have an entire floor of the building, but we don't use much of the space. The actual work area occupies only a small core at the center of the huge room. But today, my team members aren't alone. They brought their families. I wouldn't have had it any other way, and so as I sit there, I watch delighted as young boys and girls race around the empty outer edges of the massive open room. The children may not be using my office as an office, but they are using it well nonetheless. I realize with surprise that even though my own family is not here, I am happier than I have ever been before. And then through the fog of my euphoria, I see one little boy at the far reaches of the room. He is just staring out the huge glass windows of the city below. I see him and I remember doing the exact same thing. In fact, my earliest memories are of standing in that exact same spot, watching that same city and imagining what wonders my future would bring. I had no idea what the world had in store for me and I have given up trying to guess. I was born in 1966 to Benjamin Peterson and Sarah Peterson. 
I was born just one year after they were married. My father had been 62 years old then. He liked to claim that he'd taken so long to start a family because he'd been married to his business. But I knew the truth was more basic. It took him 62 years to find my mother. For her part, my mother was 21 years younger than him. My father liked to joke that Sarah was his trophy wife, but I could see another answer in his eyes. I knew that he could imagine no one more beautiful than her. But all that romance aside, I wasn't raised by a man who could chase after me. And so, instead, he brought me to work. I literally grew up surrounded by my father's business, the Minneapolis Lakes Savings and Trust. The bank had survived the Great Depression in the stable hands of my grandfather. In those days, my family had given up their own home in an effort to avoid calling the loans of those they had lent their money to. And it had almost been for naught. But in the end, the bank had survived, and the kindnesses my family had performed earned them the trust of the community. I grew up embraced by that community and loved by it. Even a generation later, people in the Midwest remember the generosity of those around them. My father had gotten his own start in the bank during the Great Depression. In good time, though, he had taken over from his own father, and he had grown the bank, albeit slowly. Eventually, he financed the very building I'm sitting in now. He financed the construction, and then he bought one floor for the bank itself, the 41st floor, the one I'm sitting in right now. And so, I grew up looking out that very window. At first, it wasn't simple wonder. But as time passed, my view began to change. The city was growing, but the bank seemed to stand still. My father was a child of the Great Depression, and so he was a very conservative man. As I looked out the window, I began to see opportunities we had passed by. And as I looked out the window, I began to see the obligations the city owed to my family. I didn't only look out the window, though. I also watched my father as he worked. At first, I admired everything he did. But as I grew, I changed. I started to get bothered by my father's lenience with borrowers. He seemed too eager to forgive the obligations of others. All too often, or so I thought, my father used to hang up the phone after a difficult conversation and say, simply, There but for the grace of God go I. I didn't see things the way he did. Instead, I saw money that was owed that would never be mine, and all because people just did stupid things and weren't made to learn from them. They didn't buy insurance, they didn't put away savings, they spent more than they could afford, they ate too much, and they became sick. And then when their mistakes caught up to them, they begged my father to help them out, and all too often, or so I thought, he did. As I saw it, they didn't pay the price of their poor decisions, and if they didn't pay the price, they would never learn a better way. I used to tell myself, as I watched my father patiently defer debt after debt, that the Great Depression was long over. My father's out-of-date ideas were stopping him from turning something good into something great, and I knew I could do better. And so, like clockwork, I got my MBA, married a beautiful woman, and bought a big house. And when I was 25 years old, my reluctant father finally handed over the keys to the family business. What happened next became the stuff of business legend. I thought at the time that I'd simply been brilliant, but I know now that I'd simply been blessed with a miracle of timing. I took over the bank just as the 1980 savings and loan crisis was unfolding. 
Minneapolis Lakes Savings and Trust was a well-financed and unusually strong bank. I leveraged everything it had to buy distressed assets from all over the country. I revised my father's lenient policies and established a new and extremely effective debt collection department. As I saw it, the more credit I could make available to people who could actually pay their debts, the better it would be for both me and for society as a whole. By the end of the 1980s, I ditched the Minneapolis Lakes Savings and Trust name for the far simpler Lake Corp. The bank had become one of the largest in the United States, and unusually, it wasn't a public institution. Instead, I owned the whole thing. I bought the entire circular tower my father had once financed, and I moved my own offices to the top floor. When I looked out the window, I saw an empire. I could see that nothing had been left on the table. I'd taken a mid-sized regional bank and made it a colossus, and I was proud of what I'd done. Eager for more, I surrounded myself with like-minded men. They were aggressive and powerful. They were doers. They had beautiful wives and beautiful houses, and they inspired the jealousy of others. We were captains of industry. Even when we visited New York, we were treated like royalty. And then, in 1999, at the age of 95, my father died. I showed up at his side at the last minute. We hadn't spoken in almost a decade, and we barely spoke even then. The old man simply looked at me and said, quite simply, Providence will show you the error of your ways. I ignored the message. Instead, I fulfilled my duty and waited until the old man was gone, and then I went right back to work as if nothing had changed. The bank kept growing, and I bought more and more assets from mortgages to mineral rights. Providence would teach me nothing. Diversification would protect me from the stakes that had brought others down. That was just the way it worked. I divorced my first wife in the mid-1980s. She had been a trophy, and she was a trophy no more. I married two more times. I didn't have much to do with my children. The way I saw it, they were simply there to keep my wives busy. And I didn't resent the rich child support payments that followed my relationships. They were so generous that the press covered them. Like everything else, they were a sign of my incredible success. And then I got sick. The sickness was nothing life-threatening. It was just a nasty bout of viral pneumonia. It was easily survivable for a 40-year-old man, but it took me out of the game. For just one week in September 2008, it took me out of the game. It just so happened that that was the week that Lehman Brothers collapsed. I knew then and I know now that I could have maneuvered through the resulting storm. People knew I paid my debts. They would have trusted me when I told them their patience would be rewarded. I knew I could have stabilized things long enough for calm waters to return. But I was in a hospital bed, nearly delirious from the virus running through my body. When executives from Goldman Sachs or AIG or Bank of America called, I could not be reached. They, quite reasonably, thought I had lost my cool, and so they called their loans. With asset prices severely depressed, my bank had to sell everything almost overnight. I went into the hospital a respected billionaire, and I came out with my largest single asset wiped away from existence. Tens of thousands lost their jobs. Of course, Lake Corp wasn't my only asset, but it also wasn't my only obligation. Bit by bit, I found myself selling houses and cars. Before long, I was living in a foul-smelling budget apartment in a complex I had once owned, and I was driving an old beater of a Ford Explorer my gardener had used to borrow. And of course, my friends vanished. They weren't the kinds of people who associated with a failure, and I couldn't blame them. I wasn't either. 
When I finally filed for bankruptcy, the national news followed the story, but they soon lost interest, and in the quiet months that followed, I took a job as a teller at a bank branch Lake Corp had once operated. But the storm had not yet passed. The bankruptcy had eliminated most of my obligations, but I had seven children from three different marriages. I owed child support for three of them. I had three minor children and no money to support them. I pleaded with the courts to cut the payments, but they had little pity for a man who had been a billionaire the year before. They found me in contempt of court, and with that, I lost my job as a bank teller. Broke, I moved into my car mere weeks before it broke down. Even after it died, I stayed in it, though. I had no better place to go. I hardly noticed when the courts canceled my driver's license. They thought all my apparent poverty was simply a show. They were going to squeeze me into compliance. I found a job stocking shelves in a nearby store, but I couldn't begin to make my payments. And so in 2015, I was arrested for contempt of court. I spent two horrifying weeks in jail. By the time I was released, my Ford Explorer had been towed, and I had a criminal record. I wouldn't have hired me. Reluctantly, I moved into a downtown shelter and started panhandling at a freeway on-ramp. I had nothing, not even a cell phone. As far as anybody could see, I was just another bum on the street. That was all I could see as well. My only reminder of my old life was that circular building. When I looked up from the freeway off-ramp, I could still see the window I used to stare out as a child. I guess it was natural that I began to hate myself. I was clean, I was able-bodied, I was well-educated, and I was smart. I should have been able to meet at least some of my obligations, but I couldn't. Everything was beyond me. And then one winter day, when I was freezing and would pass for a coat, I realized that my father had been right. Providence had showed me the error of my ways. I made myself a little sign then. It read, Jack Peterson, Banker. The second line read, Must pay child support. Please help. The way I thought of it, if I had nothing else to offer, at least I could serve as an example to others. The sign was kind of funny, and so a local paper wrote it up, but the story didn't suddenly change because of it. Instead, I spent day after day and month after month begging for child support at that freeway off-ramp. My confidence was shattered, and my hubris had been torn apart. As I looked at the drivers of the cars, I found myself saying what my father once had. There, but for the grace of God, go I. I knew I deserved my fate. And then one spring day, a man in a Honda Civic pulled up onto the shoulder next to me. He got out of his car, and he asked simply, Are you really Jack Peterson? Yes, I said, a little confused. Are you the Jack Peterson who owns Grasslands Oil? I searched my memory, and then I knew what he was talking about. Grasslands Oil had some worthless claims somewhere near the Rockies. It had been one of the assets so meaningless... Nobody had bothered to seize it. Yes, I answered tentatively. We'd like to buy it, said the man. The man offered only a few thousand dollars, but I wasn't an idiot. If they'd bothered to track me down at a freeway off-ramp, something more had to be at stake. I investigated, and before long I realized what I had. A huge oil and gas find had occurred just a few miles from the claims I owned. Suddenly, that one abandoned asset was worth tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars. And just like that, I was back in the game. I was back in the game, but I wasn't the same man I'd been before. Debt and its repercussions had reinvented me. God had reinvented me. The very concept of interest gnawed at me. It was the most natural of things. Interest was charged because of the risk that another might not be able to repay you. 
but I knew now that interest was not simply a passive acknowledgement of risk. It made that risk real and along the way created new and concrete consequences that supercharged the effects of unfortunate circumstance. I knew without debt that I would never have suffered as I did. And as I looked over the history of my family, I realized the dangers of debt were written throughout it. A financial bust had almost destroyed my grandfather 80 years earlier. He had survived, earning the trust of his community along the way. But none of it had to happen. When the Great Depression came and when the Great Recession came, asset values dropped and borrowers found themselves drowning in obligations they could not possibly fulfill. It was a chain of consequence made real by debt that raced upwards and claimed everybody it touched. But Providence had taught me the error of my ways, and now Providence had blessed me so I could find another way forward. The first thing I did was buy back my father's old office. Then I moved into it, foregoing any sort of apartment. The place had a shower, and that was all I needed. I moved into the office so I could spend all of my time planning. I had to find another road forward, and I didn't know what it was. But bit by bit, as I stared out of the office windows, my plans began to take form. A few months in, I began to hire my team, but instead of surrounding myself with hotshot bankers, I built a team of people who bought into my vision. I hired a lawyer, excited to write up new kinds of contracts, and an analyst stoked to develop new kinds of scoring, and executives eager to raise the investment necessary to supercharge the idea, and IT experts dedicated to developing the management systems that could make it all work. Finally, I hired salesmen eager to pitch my product to open-minded mortgage brokers, and I discovered something I hadn't expected. I discovered that I liked these people. I discovered that I loved them. And now I'm sitting at the conference table, and a 32-year-old black woman named Susan Jones is sitting with me. Her husband and two children are at her side. In the world I'd once lived in, no circumstance would have brought us together. But it is circumstance that has brought her to me now. A health scare drove her into debt, and her credit was destroyed. And then I met her. I visited her, and I saw that she took excellent care of her possessions. The apartment she rented out was clean and in good shape, and all of her kids' toys worked and she and her husband were conscientious about their jobs. Susan Jones is not a rich woman, but her character shines through, and I am proud to call her a friend. And that is why she, a poor woman from a bad neighborhood, is about to sign an agreement with me, the man who was once the most powerful banker in America. The two of us are about to buy a house together. She will own 20%, and I will own 80%. She will pay rent on the 80% to be set annually by a normally automated third-party assessor. Susan will have a fund to draw on for routine repairs, while major repairs and renovations will have to be mutually agreed on. Critically, Susan will never be underwater. She'll own the same percentage of her house, whether house prices rise or fall. And if she stops paying rent, then I will be able to sell her home, taking 80% of the proceeds. But she will still get her 20%. And as she is a part owner, I am confident Susan will take good care of the place. Both of us have a stake in the value of the home. As a final incentive, Susan isn't stuck with 20% ownership. She will have the right to buy more of the house from me at any time, based on the most recent assessments of the property. Instead of a mortgage and interest, we are invested together in an asset. With that, so much danger is eliminated. Instead of realizing profit by giving life to risk, I will share in the ups and downs of my partners. I will create the reality my father and grandfather could only dream of. A reality in which a financial downturn does not destroy the families caught within it.
I look around the room once more, and I see the little boy still standing there, looking out the window. I see him, and I know what he sees. He sees what I saw when I was his age, a city filled with wonder. But unlike me, he won't grow up to see a city defined by lost opportunities, unmet obligations, and fear. Instead, he will grow to see a city defined by hope and aspiration. He will grow to see a city forever filled with possibility. I smile again then, surrounded by the people I have come to love. I pick up the pen in front of me, and as if on cue, the crowd hushes and the children stop running. And then, surrounded by sudden silence, I lean forward and sign the first of the Benjamin Patterson Mortgage Agreements. I chose this story because the cost of housing is one of those things that can turn inequality into financial servitude. It can suck up so much of poor people's resources that they lose the flexibility the rich have. After all, even if all goes well, debt finance enables people to dedicate years of their future earnings to the acquisition of a living space. This, all by itself, drives up the price of those assets beyond what would otherwise be affordable. And, on a very simple level, the rich can borrow money for less. That makes it cheaper for them to buy assets and harder for poor people to do the same, even if the list prices are exactly identical. This leads to the reality where the rich can get richer through purely financial means. Of course, there are reasons our economies are built on debt. First, at least in theory, debt is easier to model. The lender limits the variables. Is the borrower good at paying back his or her debts? Do they have other money I can collect on? Is the underlying collateral valuable? And what is the risk of interest rate changes? I'm not a banker, but as I understand it, that's pretty much it. With debt, so long as nothing goes wrong, you know the cash flow you'll be getting from the money you loaned. If you invest rather than lend, new questions open up. Like, will the property be worth more? And if so, how much more? Is the rental market strong? Does the borrower take good care of their possessions? If prices go down, can I take the hit? And most critically, you don't know how large the cash flow will be. These risks are among the major reasons the effective interest rate on an investment is higher than it is on debt. But the systemic reality isn't the same. Widespread debt can trigger financial crises. One person can't pay back another who can't pay back a third, and a whole house of debt-based cards collapses. Suddenly, debt becomes very hard to model. Most of us are old enough to be aware of how unpleasant that can be. Pushing house financing into investment rather than debt will raise the risks on an individual basis, but it will lower them overall. The same principle can apply to government debt. We sell government bonds, but if an economy dips, a needy government can find itself unable to borrow money or can even go bankrupt. This has had terrible effects in Greece, Argentina, Puerto Rico, and much of Africa. Illinois, Oregon, and Detroit may be coming up soon. But what if investors could buy equity in economy? Instead of getting back a fixed amount of money, they get it back a fixed portion of GDP for a set number of years. If the economy grows, they'd earn more. If it shrinks, they'd earn less. To get investment, governments would have to show not just that they are good at collecting taxes, but that they are good at expanding their economies and ultimately providing a fertile economic reality for their citizens. It's a win-win. So what do we need to do to make this happen? 
First, we need a secondary market. You need to standardize these financial products so people can buy and sell these sorts of investments. This market could take the form of packaged financial products, like mortgages have today, or there could be a stock market where you could invest in companies that invest in properties. We have financial wizards who can make this happen. Second, you have to be able to rate the borrowers. Credit scores wouldn't be as important as they are now. You need to know how well they take care of things. Data like how much they paid to buy their cars and how much they sold them for could give you a great indication of how well they take care of their assets. You could collect data on rental deposits and see how much they get back versus the average for their landlords. The real challenge here is coming up with metrics that can be quantified so you can support that secondary market. Also, standard quantified metrics reduce the risk of racial and other biases. Third, you need to create incentives to move in this direction. This is easier than you might think. Just gradually remove the tax write-off on interest expense. If interest no longer gives the borrower a tax advantage, then they'll be far more likely to pursue investment. Interestingly, President Trump took a step in this direction when it came to business borrowing. Of course, this needs to happen slowly so you ease the market into a new reality. Our economy can be far more stable and equitable if we make this happen. Okay, Josh is falling asleep, and David is regretting that he asked me to talk about policy, and I can't blame either one of them. The fact is you should just trust that my quick and plot-filled policy overviews have some seriously boring thought behind them and move on with your lives. Before we end today, I want to make sure you all know that I welcome feedback. Tell me what you think about anything from policy to presentation. But remember, I'm not trying to be right. I'm just trying to win an election so I can abuse my position and sell millions of books to the University of Maryland medical system. Okay, going back to the basics of campaigning. I know I covered it before, but if each of you signs up just 30 more people, and those 30 people sign up 30 more people, and those 30 people sign up 30 more people, then in just a few weeks, we'll have 24 million listeners. So listen and share and follow. You'll only have yourselves to blame for what comes next. Thank you.